for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio! Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Check them out at BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Keep warm this winter, keep your feet warm, and uh, if you're over in the Southern Hemisphere, you can check out the cool t-shirts. Uh, yeah, anyone can check out the cool t-shirts, but hey, it's summertime down there. And hey, this is Black Clock Audio Tales, hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. Just got back from the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival the other day. Man, was it good. Listen for an upcoming episode about the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival from The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, the other show that's on this podcast feed. And hey, check it out. We're going to have a new show coming up. It's not going to stay on this podcast feed, but we're going to feature it on this podcast feed at first. It's called... Articulate warbling, or that's not rave, that's not ranting, that's articulate warbling, with uh, past guest uh, Zach Ferguson, author, and uh, yeah, so why don't you sit back and listen to one of the many stories we're about to tell you for the rest of this week, uh, month, actually, we've got a month of ghost stories, so, you know, if, if you like ghost stories, you want to listen to them, why not go to pgttcm? Potbean.com and donate. Become a member of one of our various uh, cults or uh, fan cults. We've got the t-shirt cult, we've got the beer cult, we've got the advert cult, and then we've got the spectral cult for people who just want their names and just want to donate a buck a month. I mean, hey, that's pretty cool. And you can always check us out at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.potbean.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Stitcher, I think we're on Spotify. Uh, We are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter, even though eh, I don't really use it. Thank you so much, and hey, ghost stories, rate, review, subscribe! The Ghost of a Live Man We were in the South Atlantic Ocean, in the latitude of the island of Fernando Norana, about 40 degrees 12 minutes south, on board the bark H.G. Johnson, homeward bound from australia i was the only passenger and we had safely rounded cape horn with the barometer at twenty eight degrees eighteen minutes and yet had somehow miraculously escaped any extremely heavy gale had had light northerly and easterly winds till we reached twenty degrees and thence the southeast trades were sending us fast on our way to the equator I sat on deck smoking my pipe, with a glorious full moon shedding its bright pathway across the blue waters, and chatting with the first mate, a man of some fifty-eight years of age, who had followed the sea since he was a boy. For twenty years or more he had been a mate or captain, 
and many and varied were the experiences he could relate. A thorough sailor and a skillful navigator, he was as honest as the day is long, had a heart as big as an ox, and was an all-around good fellow and genial companion. Some of his yarns might be taken cum grano salus, yet he always positively assured me that he was telling me the truth. An account of a voyage that he made in a whaler from the southern ocean to New Bedford seemed to me worthy to be repeated. He had rounded Cape Horn six times and the Cape of Good Hope twenty-six times, besides making many trips across the western ocean and to South American ports. I give his account as near as possible in his own words. It was in 71 that I commanded the whaler Mary Jane. We had been out from home for over three years, and had on board a full cargo of whale oil, besides two thousand pounds of whalebone, which was then worth five dollars per pound. I had also been fortunate enough to find in a dead whale which we came across a large quantity of amber grease, and our hearts were all very light as we began our homeward voyage, and our thoughts all tended to the hearty welcome which we should receive from wives and sweethearts when we reached our journey's end. Many a night I lay at my berth, I had thought with great pleasure of the amount of money that would be coming to me from the proceeds of our voyage when we arrived in New Bedford. I calculated that I had made $12,000 as my share of the proceeds of the whalebone and oil, to say nothing of the amber grease, which I well knew would bring at least $20,000, and one half of which belonged to me. You can therefore imagine that I was well pleased with myself as we went bounding along through the southeast trades. We crossed the equator in longitude 36, and soon after took strong northeast trades, and all was going well as I could wish. We had put the ship in perfect order, painted her inside and out, and you would never have recognized her as the old whaling ship that had for three years been plying the southern ocean for whales. Never shall I forget the old bull whale that we tackled about two degrees to the south of Cape Horn, but that is another story, which I will give you another time. We had just lost the northeast trades and were entering the Gulf Stream. I sat in my cabin with my chart on the table before me rolled up. I had just picked our location on it and was thinking that in a week or more I should be at home, surrounded by those near and dear to me and relating to them the story of my great good fortune. It was always my custom to work up my latitude and longitude about four o'clock in the afternoon, and then after supper pick off her position on the chart, have a smoke, and perhaps just before retiring a nip of grog, and then at eight-thirty o'clock, as regular as a clock, I would turn in. I am a great smoker, and this day I had been smoking all the afternoon, besides having had two or three nips. We had a dog on board whom we called Bolson, who had been out with us all the voyage, and who was afraid of nothing. He had endeared himself to every man on board, and when Bolson took water, something very serious was in the wind. This night, as I sat in the cabin, I heard a most dismal howl from Bolson, and called out to the mate to know what was the matter with the dog. He replied that he reckoned some of the men had been teasing him, and the occurrence soon passed from my mind. Suddenly I saw someone coming down the after-companionway into the cabin. 
I supposed at first it was the maid, and wondered that he had not first spoken to me. But then I noticed that he wore clothes I had never seen on the maid, and as he advanced into the cabin I saw his face. It was the face of a man I had never seen in my life. He was thin and pale and haggard, and as he advanced he looked about the cabin and at the rolled-up chart on the table. There seemed to be an appeal in his eyes, and then there swept over his face a look of intense disappointment, and before I could move or speak he had vanished from my sight. Now I am a very practical man, and I at once straightened myself in my chair and said to myself, "'Well, old man, you smoke one too many pipes today, or else you've had one drink too much.' for you have been asleep in your chair and seen a ghost. I was quite satisfied that I had had a dream, especially as I called to the mate and asked him if he had seen anyone come below. He said no, that he had not left the deck for the last hour, and the man at the wheel, directly in front of the door, was sure no one had entered the cabin, so I convinced myself that I had had a very vivid dream." though I could not help thinking of the matter all through the next day. At eight o'clock the next evening I sat in the same place with my work just finished, and the chart rolled up on the table before me, when suddenly the dog's dismal howl rang through the ship, and looking up I saw those same legs coming down the after companion. My hair fairly stood on end, and yet today surely I was wide awake. I had only smoked one pipe all day, and had not touched a drop of liquor. The same wan, emaciated figure walked into the cabin, glanced inquiringly and appealing at me, and again there spread over his face that look of utter disappointment, as if he had sought something and failed to find it, and again he disappeared. I rushed on deck to the mate and told him all I had seen the last two nights, but he made light of it and assured me I had been asleep or smoking too much. He did not like to suggest that I had been drinking. Still, I could see that the thought that came into his mind was, the old man has seen him again. I gave up trying to convince him, but requested that the next night, from eight to eight-thirty, he should sit with me in the cabin. How the next day passed I cannot tell. I only know that my thoughts never left that ghostly visitant and somehow I felt that the evening would reveal something to me and the spell be broken. I made up my mind I would speak to the thing, whatever it was, and I felt a sort of security in the presence of the mate, who was a daring fellow and feared neither man nor the devil. Neither rum nor tobacco passed my lips during the next day, and eight o'clock found the mate and I sitting in the cabin, and this time the chart lay open on the table beside us. Just as eight bells struck, the dog's premonitory wail sounded, and looking up we both saw the figure descending the cabin stairs. We both seemed frozen to our seats, and the strange weirdness of the whole proceeding cast the same spell over the mate and me alike, and we were both unable to move or speak. Slowly the figure proceeded into the cabin and glanced around without a word, but with the same expectant look on his face. His form was even more wasted, his cheeks sunken and his eyes seemed almost out of sight, so deeply were they set in their sockets. 
as his eye fell on the open chart a look of supreme joy fairly irradiated his features and advancing to the table he placed one long bony finger on the chart held it for a moment and then again disappeared from our sight for five minutes after he had left us we sat speechless then i managed to say what do you think of that mr morris my god sir i don't know it's beyond me then my eyes fell on the open chart and there where the finger had been was a tiny spot of blood exactly on the point of longitude sixty three degrees west and latitude thirty seven degrees north we were then only about fifty miles distant from that position and immediately there came to me the determination to steer the ship there so i laid her course accordingly and posted a lookout in the crow's nest at five o'clock in the morning just as the east began to grow gray the lookout called out boat on the lee bow and as we came up to it we found four men in it three dead and one with just a remnant of life left in him we sewed the three bodies in canvas and buried them in the ocean and then gave all our attention to restoring life to the poor emaciated frame which i then recognized was the very man who for three successive nights had visited me in my cabin by judicious and careful nursing life gradually came back to him and in four days time he was able to sit up and talk with me in the cabin it seems he commanded the ship promise and she had taken fire and been destroyed and all hands had to take to the boats ten were in the boats at first but their food had given out and one by one he had seen them die and one by one he had cast the bodies overboard finally he lost consciousness and knew not whether his three remaining companions were dead or alive then he said he seemed in a dream to see a ship and tried to go to her for help but just as he would be going on board of her something would seem to keep him back three times in his dreams he tried to visit this ship and the last time there seemed to come to him a certain satisfaction and he felt that he had succeeded in his object turning to my table he said let me take your chart i'll show you just where we were stop said i don't take that chart it is an old one and all marked over mark your position on this new one he took my pencil and knife and carefully sharpened his pencil then taking my dividers he measured his latitude and longitude and placed a pencil dot at a point on the clean chart as he lifted his hand he said oh excuse me captain i cut my finger in sharpening the pencil and left a drop of blood on the chart never mind said i leave it there and then i produced the old chart and there in an exactly corresponding place was the drop of blood left by my ghostly visitor then looking steadily into my face the mate solemnly added i can't explain this sir perhaps you can but i can tell you on my honor it's god's own truth that i have told you end of story seventeen the ghost of washington it was early on christmas morning when john riley wheeled away from a picturesque little village where he had passed the previous night to continue his cycling tour through eastern pennsylvania Today his intention was to stop at Valley Forge, and then to ride up the Schuylkill Valley, 
visiting in turn the many points of historical interest that lay along his route. Valley Forge, his road map indicated, was but a short distance further on. All round him were the hills and fields and roads over which Washington and his half-starved army had forged and roamed throughout the trying winter of 1777-78, one hundred and twenty-six years ago. It was a beautiful Christmas day, truly, and as he wheeled along, young Riley's thoughts were almost equally divided between the surrounding pleasant scenery and the folks at home, who, he knew very well, were assembling at just about the present time round a heavily laden Christmas tree in the front parlor. The sun rose higher and higher, and Riley pedaled on down the valley, passing every now and then quaint, pleasant-looking farmhouses, many of which, no doubt, had been built anterior to the period which had given the vicinity its history. Arriving finally at a place where the road forked off in two directions, Riley was puzzled which way to go on. There happened to be a dwelling close by. Accordingly he dismounted, left his wheel leaning against a gatepost at the side of the road, and walked up a wretchedly flagged walk leading to the house, with the idea of getting instructions from its inmates. Situated in the center of an unkept field of rank grass and weeds, the building lay back from the highway probably one hundred and fifty feet. It was long and low in shape, containing but one story, and having what is termed a gabled roof, under which there must have been an attic of no mean size. On coming close to the house, a fact Riley had not noticed from the road became plainly evident. It was deserted. He saw that the roof and side shingles were in wretched condition, that the window sashes and frames as well as the doors and door frames were missing from the openings in the side walls where once they had been, and that the entire side of the house, including that part of the stone foundation which showed above the ground, was full of cracks and seams. At first on the point of turning back, he concluded to see what the interior was like anyway. Accordingly he went inside. Glancing around the large dust-filled room he had entered, his gaze at first failed to locate any object of the least interest. A rickety-appearing set of steps went up into the attic from one side of the apartment, and over in one corner was a large open fireplace from the walls of which much of the brickwork had become loosened and fallen out. Riley had started up the steps toward the attic, when happening to look back for an instant, his attention was attracted to a singular-looking, jug-shaped bottle no larger than a vinegar cruet, which lay upon its side on the hearth of the fireplace, partly covered up by debris of loose bricks and mortar. He hastened back down the steps and crossed the room, taking the bottle up in his hand and examining it with curiosity. Being partly filled with a liquid of some kind or other, the bottle was very soon uncorked and held under the young man's nose. The liquid gave forth a peculiar, pungent, and inviting odor. Without further hesitation, Riley's lips sought the neck of the bottle. It is hardly possible to describe the pleasure and satisfaction his senses experienced as he drank. While the liquid was still gurgling down his throat, a heavy hand was placed most suddenly on his shoulder, and his body was given a violent shaking. The bottle fell to the floor and was broken into a hundred pieces. "'Hello,' said a rough voice, almost in Riley's ear. 
who are you anyway and what are you doing within the lines a spy i'll be bound as most assuredly there had been no one else in the vicinity of the building when he had entered it and with equal certainty no one had come down the steps from the attic riley was naturally surprised and mystified by this unexpected assault he struggled instinctively to break loose from the unfriendly grasp and when he finally succeeded he twisted his body around so that he faced across the room immediately he made the remarkable discovery that there were four other persons in the apartment three uncouth-looking fellows habited in fantastic but ragged garments and a matronly-looking woman the latter standing over a wash-tub which had been elevated upon two chairs in a corner near the fireplace to all appearance the woman had been busy at her work and had stopped for the moment to see what the men were going to do her waist-sleeves were rolled up to the shoulders and her arms dripped with water and soap-suds over the tops of the tubs partly filled with water there were visible the edges of several well-soaked fabrics to add to his astonishment he noticed that in the chimney-place which a moment before was falling apart but now seemed to be clean and in good condition a cheerful fire burned and that above the flames was suspended an iron pot from which issued a jet of steam he also noticed that the entire appearance of the room had undergone a great change everything seemed to be in good repair tidy and neat the ceilings the walls and the door even the stairway leading to the attic the openings in the walls were fitted with window sashes and well-painted doors the apartment had in fact evolved under his very eyesight from a state of absolute ruin into one of excellent preservation all of this seemed so weird and uncanny that riley stood for a moment or two in the transformed apartment utterly dumbfounded with his mouth wide open and his eyes all but popping out of his head he was brought to his senses by the fellow who had shaken him growlingly out come explain yourself an explanation is due me riley managed to gasp don't bandy words with the rascal harry one of the other men spoke up bring him along to headquarters thereupon without further parley the three men marched riley in military fashion into the open air and down to the road here he picked up at the gate-post his bicycle while they unstacked a group of three old-fashioned-looking muskets located close by when the young man had entered the house a few minutes before this stack of arms had not been there he could not understand it neither could he understand on looking back at the building as he was marched off down the road the mysterious agency that had transformed his dilapidated exterior just as it had been the interior into a practically new condition while they trudged along the strangers exhibited a singular interest in the wheel riley pushed at his side running their coarse hands over the frame and handlebar and acting on the whole as though they never before had seen a bicycle this in itself was another surprise he had hardly supposed there were three men in the country so totally unacquainted with what is a most familiar piece of mechanism everywhere at the same time that they were paying so much attention to the wheel riley in turn was studying with great curiosity his singular-looking captors rough unprepossessing appearing fellows they were 
large of frame and unshaven and it must be added dirty of face what remained of their very ragged clothing he had already noticed was of a most remarkable cut and design resembling closely the garments worn by the continental militiamen in the war of independence the hats were broad low of crown and three-cornered in shape the trousers were buff-coloured and extended at the knees and the long blue spike-tailed coats were flapped over at the extremities of the tails the flaps being fastened down with good-sized brass buttons leather leggings were strapped around cowhide boots through the badly worn feet of which in places where the leather had cracked open the flesh unprotected by stockings could be seen dressed as he was in a cleanly gray cycling costume riley's appearance most assuredly was strongly in contrast to that of his companions after a brisk walk of twenty minutes during which they occasionally met and passed by one or two or perhaps a group of men clothed and outfitted like riley's escorts the little party followed the road up a slight incline and around a well-wooded bend to the left coming quite suddenly and to the very captive very unexpectedly to what was without a doubt a military encampment a village in fact composed of many rows of small log huts along the streets between the buildings muskets were stacked in hundreds of places over in one corner on a slight eminence commanding the road up which they had come and cleverly hidden from it behind trees and shrubbery the young man noticed a battery of field pieces wherever the eye was turned on this singular scene were countless numbers of soldiers all garmented in three-cornered hats spike-tailed coats and knee-breeches walking lazily hither and thither grouped around crackling fires or parading up and down the streets in platoons under the guidance of ragged but stern-looking officers harry stopped the little procession of four in front of one of the larger of the log houses then while they stood there the long blast from a bugle was heard followed by the roll of drums a minute or two afterward several companies of militia marched up and grounded their arms forming three sides of a hollow square around them the fourth and open side being toward the log house directly succeeding this manoeuvre there came through the doorway of the house and stepped up the centre of the square stopping directly in front of riley a dignified-looking person tall and straight and splendidly proportioned of figure and having a face of great nobility and character the cold chills chased one another down riley's back his limbs swayed and tottered beneath his weight he had never experienced another such sensation of mingled astonishment and fright he was in the presence of general washington not a phantom washington either but washington in the flesh and blood as material and earthly as a being as ever crossed a person's line of vision riley in his time had seen so many portraits marble busts and statues of the great commander that he could not be mistaken recovering the use of his faculties which for the moment he seemed to have lost riley did the very commonplace thing that others before him have done when placed unexpectedly in remarkable situations he pinched himself to make sure that he was in reality wide awake and in the natural possession of his senses he felt like pinching the figure in front of him also 
but he could not muster up the courage to do that. He stood there trying to think it all out, and as his thoughts became less stagnant, his fright dissolved under the process of reasoning his mind pursued. To reason a thing out, even though an explanation can only be obtained by leaving much of the subject unaccounted for, tends to make one bolder and less shaky in the knees. The series of strange incidents which he was experiencing had been inaugurated in the old-fashioned dwelling he had visited after information concerning the roads, and everything had been going along in a perfectly normal way up to the very moment when he had taken a drink from the bottle found in the fireplace. But from that precise time everything had gone wrongly. Hence the inference that the drinking of the peculiar liquid was accountable in some way or other for his troubles. There was a supernatural agency in the whole thing. That much must be admitted. And whatever that agency was, and however it might be accounted for, it had taken Riley back into a period of time more than a hundred years ago, and landed him, body and soul, within the lines of the patriotic forces wintering at Valley Forge. He might have stood there, turning over and over in his mind, pinching himself and muttering, all the morning, had not the newcomer ceased a silent but curious inspection of his person, and asked, "'Who are you, sir?' "'John Riley, at your pleasure,' the young man replied, adding a question on his own account, "'And who are you, sir?' Immediately he received a heavy thump on his back from Harry's hard fist. "'It is not for you to question the general,' the ragged administrator of the blow exclaimed. "'And it is not for you to be so gay,' Riley returned angrily, giving the blow back with added force. "'Here, here,' broke in the first questioner. "'Fisticuffs under my very nose. No more of this. I command you both.' To Harry he added in an extra caution. "'Your zeal in my behalf will be better appreciated by being less demonstrative.' Blows should be struck only on the battlefield. To Riley he said, with a slight smile hovering over his face, My name is Washington. Perhaps you may have heard of me. To this Riley replied, I have indeed, and heard you very well spoken of, too. Emboldened by the other's smile, he ventured another question. I think my reckoning of the day and year is badly at fault. An hour ago I thought the day was Christmas Day. How far out of the way did my calculation take me, sir? The day is indeed Christmas Day, and the year is, as you must know, the year of our Lord 1,777. Riley again pinched himself. Why do you bring this man to me? Washington now inquired, turning to Harry and his companions. He is a spy, sir, said Harry. That is a lie, Riley indignantly interpolated. I have done nothing to warrant any such charge. We found him in the widow Robin's house, pouring strong liquor down his throat. I had gone inside after information concerning the roads, which he was getting from a bottle, sir. If drinking from a bottle of necessity constitutes being a spy, I fear our camp is already a hotbed. Washington somewhat sagely remarked, casting his eye around slyly at his officers and men. "'Tell me,' he went on, with sudden sternness, looking wryly through and through, as though to read his very thoughts, "'is the charge true? Do you come from how?' 
the charge is not true sir i come from no one i'm simply making a tour of pleasure through this part of the country on my bicycle with the country swarming with the men from two hostile armies any kind of tour save one of absolute necessity seems ill-timed when i set out i knew nothing about any armies the fact is sir riley started to make an explanation but he checked himself on realizing that the telling of any such improbable yarn would only increase the hazardousness of his position well washington questioned in a tone of growing suspicion i certainly did not know that your army or any other army was quartered in this vicinity riley hesitated for lack of something further to say you see he finally added prompted by a happy idea i rode my wheel from new york you may have come from new york though it is hard to believe you came on that singular looking machine so great a distance where is the horse which drew the vehicle riley touched his bicycle this is the horse sir just as it is the vehicle he said the man is crazy harry exclaimed washington only looked the incredulity he felt and this time asked a double question how can the thing be balanced without it being held upright by a pair of shafts from a horse's back and how is the motive power acquired for an answer riley jumped upon the wheel and at a considerable speed and in a haphazard way pedalled around the place within the hollow square of soldiers hither and thither he went at one second nearly wheeling over the toes of the line of astonished if not frightened militiamen at the next bearing suddenly down on harry and his companions and making them dance and jump almost alertly to avoid a collision even the dignified washington was once or twice put to the necessity of dodging hurriedly aside when his equilibrium was threatened riley eventually dismounted doing so with assumed clumsiness by stopping the wheel at harry's back and falling over heavily against the soldier harry tumbled to the ground but riley dexterously landed on his feet at once he began offering a profusion of apologies you did that by design harry shouted jumping to his feet his face was red with anger and he shook his fist threateningly at the bicyclist washington commanded the man to hold his peace then to riley he expressed a great surprise at his performance and a desire to know more about the bicycle the young man thereupon described the machine minutely lifting it into the air and spinning the wheels to illustrate how smoothly they rotated i can see it is possible to ride the contrivance with rapidity it has been put together with wonderful ingenuity washington said when riley had replaced the wheel on the ground and you sir it is but a toy an officer spoke up put our friend on this bundle of tin and race him against one of our horsemen and he would make a sorry showing riley smiled i bear the gentleman no ill will for his opinion he said still i would like to show him by a practical test of the subject that his ignorance of it is most profound you would test the speed of the machine against that of a horse washington said in amazement i would sir you have a good road yonder with your permission and a worthy opponent i would make the test at once but sir the man is a spy harry broke in would it not be better to throw a rope around his neck and give him his deserts the charge is by no means proven washington replied 
nor can it be until a court-martial convenes this afternoon and i see no reason why we may not in the meantime enjoy the unique contest which has been suggested it will make a pleasant break in the routine of camp life a murmur of approval went up from the masses of men by whom they were surrounded while they had been talking it seemed as though everybody in the camp not already on the scene had gathered together behind the square of infantry then sir harry said with some eagerness i would like to be the man to ride the horse there is no better animal than mine anywhere and i understand his tricks and humours quite well enough to put him to his best pace i confess i have heard you well spoken of as a horseman washington said be away with you saddle and bridle your horse at once it was the chain of singular circumstances narrated above which brought john riley into the most remarkable contest of his life he had entered many bicycle races at one time or another always with credit to himself and to the club whose colors he wore and he had every expectation of making a good showing to-day yet a reflection of the weird conditions which had brought about the present contest took away some of his self-possession when a few minutes later he was marched over to the turnpike and left to his own thoughts while the officers were pacing out a one-mile straightaway course down the road after the measurement had been taken two unbroken lines of soldiers were formed along the entire mile a most evident precaution against riley leaving the race-course at any point to escape across the fields washington came up to him again when the preparations were completed to shake his hand and whisper a word or two of encouragement in his ear having performed these kindly acts he left to take up a position near the point of finish the beginning of the course was located close to the battery of half-concealed field-pieces riley was now conducted to this place shortly afterward harry appeared on his horse he leered at the bicyclist contemptuously and said something of a sarcastic nature partly under his breath when the two lined up side by side for the start to these slights riley paid no heed he had a strong belief that when the race was over there would be left in the mutton-like head of his opponent very little of his present inclination toward the humorous the soldier's mount was a handsome black mare fourteen and a half hands high strong of limbs and at the flanks and animated by a spirit that kept her prancing around with continuous action it must be admitted that the man rode very well he guided the animal with ease and nonchalance when she reared and plunged and kept her movements confined to an incredibly small piece of ground considering her abundance of action keep to your own side of the road throughout the race i don't want to be collided with by your big beast riley cautioned while they were awaiting two signals from the starter to this harry replied in some derision i'll give you a good share of the road at the start and all of it by my dust too afterward and then the officer who held the pistol fired the first shot riley was well satisfied with the conditions under which the race was to be made the road was wide and level smooth hard and straight and a strong breeze which had sprung up blew squarely against his back his wheel was geared up to eighty-four inches the breeze promised to be a valuable adjunct in pushing it along awaiting the second and last signal riley glanced down the two blue ranks of soldiers 
which stretched away into lazy lines in the distance and converged at the termination of the course where a flag had been stuck into the ground the soldiers were at parade rest their unceasing movements as they chatted to one another turning their bodies this way and that and craning their heads forward to look toward the starting point and then jerking them back made the lines seem like long squirming snakes at the end of the course a thick bunch of military men clogged the road and overspread into the fields crack the signal to be off riley shoved aside the fellow who had been holding his wheel upright while astride of it and pushed down on the pedals the mare's hoofs dug the earth her great muscular legs straightened out she sprang forward with a snort of apparent pleasure taking the lead at the very start riley heard the shout of excitement run along the two ranks of soldiers he saw them waving their arms and hats as he went by and on ahead through the cloud of dust there was visible the shadow-like outlines of the snorting galloping horse whose hoof-beats sounded clear and sharp above the din which came from the sides of the highway the mare crept farther and farther ahead very soon a hundred feet or more of the road lay between her and the bicyclist harry turned in his saddle and called out another sarcasm i shall pass you very soon keep to your side of the road riley shouted not a bit daunted by the way the race had commenced his head was well down over the handlebars his back had the shape of the upper portion of an immense egg up and down his legs moved faster and faster and faster yet he went by the soldiers so rapidly that they only appeared by two streaks of blurry color their sharp rasping shouts sounded like cracking of musketry the cloud of dust blew against the cyclist's head and into his mouth and throat when he glanced ahead again he saw with satisfaction that the mare was no longer increasing her lead it soon became evident even that he was slowly cutting down the advantages she had secured harry again turned his head shortly afterward doubtless expecting to find his opponent hopelessly distanced by this time instead of this riley was alarmingly close upon him the man ejaculated a sudden oath and lashed his animal furiously straining every nerve and sinew the mare for the moment pushed further ahead then her pace slackened a bit and riley again crept up to her closer and closer to her than before until his head was abreast of her outstretched tail harry was lashing the mare and swearing at her unceasingly now but she had spurted once and appeared to be incapable of again increasing her speed in this way she went on for some little distance harry using his whip brutally the mare desperately struggling to attain a greater pace riley hanging on with tenacity to her hind flanks and giving up not an inch of ground a mile is indeed a very short distance when traversed at such a pace the finishing flag was already but a few hundred feet farther on riley realized that it was time now to go to the front he gritted his teeth together with determination and bent his head down even further toward his front wheel then his feet began to move so quickly that there was only visible an indistinct blur at the sides of his crankshaft at this very second with a face marked with rage and hatred harry brought his horse suddenly across the road to that part of it which he had been warned to avoid 
it is hard to tell what kept riley from being run into and trampled underfoot an attempt at backpedalling a sudden twist of the handlebar a lurch to one side that almost threw him from his seat then in the fraction of a second he was over on the other side of the road pushing ahead of the mare almost as though she were standing still the outburst of alarm from the throats of the soldiers changed when they saw that riley had not been injured first into a shout of indignation at the dastardly attempt which had been made to run him down and then into a roar of delight when the bicyclist breasted the flag a winner of the race by twenty feet as he crossed the line riley caught a glimpse of washington he stood close to the flag and was waving his hat in the air with enthusiasm of a schoolboy riley went down the road slackening his speed as effectively as he could but before it was possible to entirely stop his wheel's momentum the noisy acclamations in his rear ceased with startling suddenness he turned in his saddle and looked back as sure as st peter he had the road entirely to himself there wasn't a soldier or a ghost of a soldier in sight as soon as he could he turned his bicycle about and rode back along the highway now so singularly deserted looking hither and thither in vain for some trace of the vanished army even the flag which had been stuck into the ground at the end of the one-mile race-course was gone the breeze had died out again and the air was tranquil and warm in the branches of a nearby tree two sparrows chirped and twittered peacefully riley went back to the place where the camp had been he found there only open fields on one side of the road and a clump of woodland on the other he continued on down the little hill up which harry and his companions had brought him a few hours previously and followed the road on further coming finally to the fork in it near which was located the old farmhouse wherein he had been taken captive the house was as it had been when he had previously entered it falling apart from age and neglect when he went inside he found lying on the brick hearth in front of the fireplace a number of pieces of broken glass End of story eighteen